Bram was an incredibly encouraging, uh, collaborative uh, person. He he kind of saw the best in everybody around him, and he was just able to bring it out um, and 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 really encourage others to um, follow their own follow their path and and contribute everything they could. Um, you know, he did some really important work in his own right, but it's the the sort of the team player that he is, um, the collaborator, um, just such a loving person. And for me personally, I felt that, you know, I think I ended up doing and have done so much more in my activism around 9-11 because of Graham, because Graham encouraged me to keep going. I want to say Graham was literally a gentle man. Even when he said he was angry about the lies of 9-11, he did not shout it. All the more, you knew it was true. I don't recall, again, my memory is uh, an issue here, that he ever expressed anger at a person or persons he would name. He was not a complainer. His spirituality was deep and profound. When I last saw him at a meeting late last year at a friend's home, along with five other friends, he went on longer than usual on the question of some kind of afterlife. Befitting his intelligence, his philosophy, and his Buddhism, he treated the question as a highly complex one, one challenging our deepest understandings. And I don't mind saying I was spellbound by what he was saying and thinking as he spoke how deeply respectful I was of him. He had stage four cancer of the prostate. He was not fooling himself about his mortality. He was exploring it as deeply as he explored everything when he first came to me he was he was quite sick and so i have obviously i knew about him but i had to sort of go back then and you know maybe watch videos and things and and here because you wouldn't hear a lot from him right because uh, he was very um very humble about all of that but um so yeah my understanding of him was not necessarily based on that so from my perspective i would say very much that his activism came forth from this deep, it was like in the heart and soul of him, he was deeply compassionate and so loving and wanting to protect. That was something that was so strong in him. And I feel that's where his activism came forth from, wanting to protect the vulnerable. And it came to me out of that, and that was that um, that spiritual, that deep, soulful alignment that he had just so, so naturally. And I think the activism was just this very active and outward expression of that, his deep, beautiful, compassionate heart. Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan here in May of 2023 with episode 444 of the Corbett Report podcast, Remembering Graham McQueen. And as you might have gathered from those opening clips and from the title of today's exploration, yes, today I have the unfortunate news of informing my listeners who have not yet heard that Dr. Graham McQueen passed away late last month. And this is, of course, extremely upsetting news, not only for those of us who have always appreciated his incredibly 
diligent efforts in the 9-11 truth space, but of course to friends and family and others who have lost a, a, a champion for truth, um, someone who was very much dedicated to his causes and who often worked uh, humbly and often behind the scenes, but definitely doing incredibly important work. And I hope at the very least today to do to do some degree of honor to that work and the incredible legacy that Dr. Gray McQueen has left us. So uh, let's just start by gathering some facts. Um, we'll take this from a post that appeared at colorado911truth.org, uh, Gray McQueen, 1948 to 2023. And they post a message from Sharon McQueen, uh, uh, Gray McQueen's wife, who wrote, uh, Dr. Gray McQueen died at home in Dundas from cancer on April 25th in the loving presence of his wife and daughter, Sharon and Jessica. He leaves behind his brother, Ken, and sisters, Megan Lorna. After graduating with a PhD from Harvard, he joined the Department of Religious Studies at, at McMaster, where he taught Asian religion to thousands of students, being honored for the excellence of his teaching by the McMaster Student Union. He established the Center for Peace Studies and was involved in peace-building activities in several different war zones. After retirement, he dedicated his research to a critique of the foundations of the War on Terror. Graham made friends all over the world and is appreciated for his creativity, courage, and dedication to peace and justice. The family will hold a small private celebration of Graham's life in lieu of flowers. Please send a donation to the nonprofit organization of your choice. With love and gratitude to Graham for spending his life with us, much love, Sharon. Well, as we've already seen today, there are there are no shortage of testament testaments and testimonies of those whose lives have been touched by Dr. McQueen, and there's a lot to say about the incredible work that he has done over the years. And obviously, I would say for the Corporate Report audience, audience most obviously in the field of 9/11 truth research. So, I suppose I could make some sort of dry, dusty encapsulation of Dr. Gray McQueen's story and how he came to understand 9-11 truth and then came to propagate it. But why don't I leave that to him? Because, as you may or may not know, I had the chance of meeting Dr. Gray McQueen in Malaysia in 2012 when I was there to speak at the 9-11 Revisited Conference. Uh, Dr. Gray McQueen was one of the other speakers there and in fact, his speech is up on my website. If you are interested in that, I'll link it in the show notes. Uh, but while we were there, I also not only had the chance to talk to and get to know Dr. Gray McQueen on a personal level, at least a little bit, um, I also got the chance to record a one-on-one -on -one interview with him for GRTV, Global Research TV, uh, which aired under the title 9-11 and How to Proceed and was posted to my website as 9-11 The Next Step. And in that conversation, exploration. We talk about 9-11 truth, but I'm going to play the excerpt from that conversation where Dr. McQueen talks about how he came to 9-11 truth and what sorts of things he did there. The first thing I did was when I read uh, an article, Explosive Evidence, by David Ray Griffin, which had to do with the New York firefighters and the fact that a lot of them had wit witnessed explosions in the Twin Towers. He and others I, just, I think probably Todd Fletcher was involved in doing some of the research for that. Anyway, some of them had really spent a lot of time combing through the uh, FDNY oral histories, which had recently been released after a lawsuit by the New York Times against the city of New York. 
I read that article and I was fascinated by it. I thought, if this is right, if all these firefighters say, well, yeah, we saw and heard explosions, the place was being blown apart, then, wow, that's really important. Uh, imagine uh, having a formal legal process, an investigation of a crime. Imagine if you had a bunch of eyewitnesses that you were ignoring. It's outrageous. So I just shoved everything on my desk aside. I had projects I was working on. I said, nothing is as important as this. These oral histories have just been recently re uh, released. There's about 10,000 pages of them. Most people do not have the time to read that, but I do. And so that was it for the next few months. I read them all and I counted, you know, I paid attention to how many people talked about explosions. I worked out a method of counting them, what would count and what wouldn't count as an explosion testimony. I didn't want to be interpreting it. I wanted them, the witnesses, to interpret it themselves. So, for example, if they said, well, then I heard a boom, that's not good enough. If they said, then I heard an explosion, that would count. So I did that. And I also tried to look for evidence that contradicted the theory people that said, for example, that the buildings pancaked down, since that was a very popular theory <coughs> in, the, in the months after 9-11 when the firefighters were being interviewed in the oral histories. Anyway, so, the, so I did that work, and that was published in the Journal of 9-11 Studies in 2006. <coughs> uh, what was it called? 118 Witnesses, fire, the Firefighters' Testimony to Explosions in the Twin Towers, something like that because I had found 118, which I thought was a lot. I mean, <laughs> imagine a trial where you have 118 witnesses. That's, that's very strong. And they corroborate each other. In some cases, they're quite detailed testimony. Um, now, since then, I, I, I've worked rather half-heartedly since then to expand that list, because you reach a certain point of diminishing returns. If people can poo-poo 118, then they're not, you know, they're not going to have any trouble with 156, which is my current list. But anyway, uh, I will probably briefly in my talk show the chart of 156 and give two specific witnesses as an example of how one witness can corroborate the testimony of another. And I would say that that article is still the one that I'm most known for in the movement simply because I was the one who was there at that historical moment, who had the opportunity to read them all and to do that, uh, and to get to those very important documents first. Uh, not first, but early on. <clears throat> and I won't spend so much time on the work that I did subsequent to that, but every time I wrote four main research articles, all of them published in the Journal of 9-11 Studies, and each time I thought, what is a key point in the official story that I could knock out because by this point, of course, I was convinced, <clears throat> I was thoroughly convinced through my own research, the official narrative was false. So what are the key points that I can knock out? I'm not an architect, I'm not an engineer, I'm not a physicist, I can't do all that work, but there's some things I can do. I can read oral histories, for example, so on. So I ended up writing three other articles and each one, it seemed to me, touched on a key element in the official story. Um, so one had to do with foreknowledge of Building 7's 
collapse. Um, you know, the, it turns out there were hundreds of people who knew it was going to come down before it came down. Some of them knew four hours before it came down. And yet it was the first such collapse in history. Well, think about it. That's a problem. You know, it's impossible to know about a unique event before it happens, an event that's unprecedented. And when there are so many people who know, it's to say it's fishy is to understate the case. Moreover, they didn't just suspect it was coming down. Many of them say they knew it was coming down because authorities had told them it was definitely coming down. They had been told where to stand, some of them. They, had been, they, they, they talked about standing around for a couple of hours, waiting for seven to come down, which is why I entitled that article, Waiting for Seven. You're waiting for an unprecedented event? So that's an important topic, and that's a fairly dry article, but I think it was important. The other two, um, one of them was, I became intrigued during a discussion with some bloggers about the way the North Tower came down. Um, as I say, I'm not a physicist, but, but on the other hand, I took physics in grade nine, so I know the kind of the rudimentary things about free fall and so on. I don't think you have to have a PhD in physics to grasp the basic point that an object in free fall through the air will have a different uh, acceleration profile than one that impacts an enormously strong steel structure. Uh, now, when we uh, when we walk, when we actually look at the North Tower coming down, it doesn't come down uh, as quickly as if it were in free fall acceleration. But there is no change in the rate of acceleration when the top part of the building supposedly impacts the bottom part. Now, the official story of the National Institute of Standards and Technology is that when that top rigid part of the building came down due to fire and buckling of columns and so on, it fell onto the lower structure and caused its total and complete and rapid collapse. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> but if that part, top part is going to cause any such event, it is going to have to slow down. Uh, there's no way around it. This is a necessary deceleration, and it's not there. Um, and so again, I don't have a PhD in physics, but I knew how to um, break the video into frames, and I knew how to tell what the rate of acceleration was. And when it came to writing that article, I needed to have an engineer to write it with me, and I asked Tony Zamboti if he would. He's an engineer from New Jersey, wonderful guy, and we wrote that article, which I think, again, is an article that proves, really, that the official narrative of how those buildings came down is false. Obviously, the lower structure was destroyed by some other agency. It wasn't destroyed by the top of the building. And the final article was the one in which I guess I took the biggest risk, uh, because it has to do with the shaking of the earth when the South Tower came down, that whole seismic issue. Uh, you know, there's the se seismographs that show us the various uh, profiles of what supposedly happened at the World Trade Center. <coughs> and um, these were measured at the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory. And Although I'm not a seismologist, I began to think there was something deeply wrong about the conclusions they had come to. 
that they thought that the big uh, signals were caused when the tower hit the ground. And it's perfectly clear from a variety of sources that signals were, that the earth was shaking well before anything hit the ground. And indeed, before the building even visibly began to come down. And so in that article, I assembled quite a bit of evidence to show that. And I might add that um, in the next couple of weeks, we expect an article to be published in the Journal of 9-11 Studies by a guy who does have the credentials and has, d has worked in the field of seismology, who analyzes those uh, seismograms in considerable depth and comes to more radical conclusions than I did that the signals that were supposedly caused by the planes hitting the towers, he said, were not caused by that. They were caused by explosions. And that the subsequent big signals, which supposedly were from the buildings coming down, 1, 2, and 7, were all caused by explosions. That they simply do not have the right signature for what supposedly caused them and they don't have the right timing either. He says it's clear that the explosion which caused the first signals, the supposed plane impact, unfortunately happened 15 seconds before the planes struck the building. So I feel uh, to some extent justified in some of the conclusions that I reached. So those are the research articles and you, you get to a certain point where you say, okay, I could keep doing this for the rest of my life because this is such a big fraud. I could keep finding research projects. It's interesting to do research, but at some point, and I reached this previously in peace studies too, you get to the point where you say, you know what? We've got enough evidence. What we need to do now is public education. We need to do advocacy. We need to make the right films, have the right hearings, get the legal process started, all these things. It's not good enough to continue doing research in my office. And so it was after that time I began kind of joining other organizations. Um, I helped put on the Toronto hearings on 9-11, which I think were important and will continue to be important, especially now that the hearings report is finally, has finally been published. Um, joined the 9-11 consensus panel and became co-editor of the Journal of 9-11 Studies. In all cases, I think I'm playing a role, but it's not the role primarily of a researcher. It's the role of a thinker, an advocate, an organizer. Not always fun roles, but they're, they're necessary. Now that was only a small clip from that larger interview, and of course I will have the complete interview in the linked in the show notes at corporatereport.com slash McQueen, so you can go there and check it out for yourself in its entirety. But I think even from that small clip, we can start to understand something about Gray McQueen's life and work. And even though, again, this is only pertaining to his 9-11 truth work, which was, of course, towards the latter half of his career, the earlier half having been a remarkable career um, in forging, really, the academic subject of peace studies at McMaster University and helping to actually travel to Afghanistan and other places. He had a remarkable career that he didn't talk about very much, as many of the testimonies speak to. Um, but even from 
just that small clip, I think we can start to understand a few important things about Dr. McQueen. For example, through the very precise and logical construction of his words and arguments, I think we can start to see the very thoughtful nature that I don't think you would have to know anything about Gray McQueen's biography to watch that clip and realize, oh, of course, he is an academic, he's a professor, he's someone who definitely has uh, a control over his, his words and understands and thinks about the meaning of what he's attempting to convey. And that came across in his very, very crystal clear writing, which I've had cause to cite many times, as we'll get into in a moment. Uh, another thing that we can tell from that clip, um, in his asides and his qualifications, his manner of speaking, where he says, well, I didn't do it first, but early on, and other such things, we do get a sense of the humility of his nature, that it was never for Dr. McQueen, it was never about him. It was always about the information, and he was just someone who was there doing it, and which perhaps sometimes gave short shrift to his real contributions that he was making. But perhaps most importantly, from his demonstrable dedication, which perhaps goes beyond the bonds of that particular video, but from his de demonstrable de dedication to truth and justice, which led him into areas that were verboten in academia and which risked really derailing or marginalizing his voice um, and his career, his academic career, I think we can see the tenacity of his passion for truth and justice, which was not afraid um, to see him following that courageously to wherever it would lead him. And I think that is an example that we can learn from. So having said that, I think given the type of person that Gray McQueen was, attested to by many who knew him, perhaps he would be uncomfortable with making an episode like this all about him as a human being, as a person, rather than about his work, the information, actually, that he was attempting to convey through his work. So I... I think it would be appropriate to, at the very least, talk for a moment about his work and the legacy that he leaves behind him through that work, which, again, you don't have to be very immersed in this subject to know was incredibly, profoundly important. And you could know that even if you are simply and only a listener to The Corbett Report who has never even listened to an interview with Gray McQueen before or read one of his books or articles. Well, you've read it by proxy because even, as you'll note, even in the past several months, and I did not do this intentionally or consciously, I was not consciously aware of just how close uh, Dr. McQueen was to passing when I was doing this, but as I as I did and as I even noted on the podcast, it's, it's hard to go a week these days without reading from another Dr. Gray McQueen article, and here's another one. So, for example, back in episode 426, on who controls the news controls the world. You'll recall that we took a look at the article that he co-authored with Ted Walter on the triumph of the official narrative, how the TV networks hid the Twin Towers explosive demolition on 9-11. Again, valuable academic contribution looking quantifiably at what was taking place on the network news broadcasts on the day of 9-11. Some valuable work there. Um, I had cause to cite him again in episode 430, The Media Are the Terrorists, where we read from September 11, the Pentagon's B-movie. Um, again, an incredibly important and insightful way of looking at the events of 9-11. And again, if you even if you just listened to the, 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 the short bits that I'd read 
from that article in that episode, I think you would understand the importance and the gravity of the ideas that he was bringing to the table. Uh, there was a false flag reading list, of course, that I did in the wake of the false flags documentary in Questions for Corbett number 93. And you will note that, of course, I did cite and talk about the 2001 anthrax deception, the case for a domestic conspiracy by Dr. McQueen. And with a link back to interview 944 from way back in the archives, shortly after the book was published, when I interviewed him about that book, and I said at the beginning of that interview, if you can cast your mind back that many years, I said, I started the interview in an unusual manner for myself, simply by noting, uh, thank you for writing this book in as clear and concise a way as you have. And I called it an academic page turner. And I stand by that. It, it is an extremely, exceptionally well-written book that delivers the argument in, I think, precisely the right way, uh, certainly for Dr. McQueen and the audience that he was writing for. It was uh, excellent. It was academic without being jargony and, and dense, uh, needlessly dense. It was to the point, it was logical, it was concise, and it made its arguments very well. So if you know nothing about the anthrax deception and how what an important part that played in the War of Terror narrative and how much it has been memory-holed, if you really want sort of just a general overview of that, I would direct you to that book. It is an excellent book on that subject. So again, whether you are a longtime follower of Graham, Dr. Graham McQueen's works or if you've only encountered him by proxy through the Corbett Report, or if you're just encountering him for the first time, um, I hope that having explored some of these works, you would be interested in a compendium of some of the most important works that he has done along these lines. And if you are looking for such a collection, well, guess what? It has very recently been published online, specifically at radical.org, R-A-T-I-C-A-L.org, under the title, The Pentagon's B-Movie, Looking Closely at the September 11th Attacks. And this is a an ebook of sorts uh, that has been published online in HTML form. There is now also a PDF, a downloadable PDF of this entire work, which comprises a number of uh, works that uh, Dr. McQueen has done on September 11th, the anthrax attacks, but other subjects besides. So you'll find, for example, of course, the publication of the aforementioned September 11th, The Pentagon's B-Movie in this book but also other things related to the war on terror and the war on democracy. So talking about 9-11, talking about anthrax, um, intimidating Canadian legislatures, 2013, 2014. That's an interesting part of the story that's often neglected. Um, again, some general overview of the, the anthrax attacks and what was happening there. Um, foreknowledge of World Trade Center 7 and other um, bread and butter issues of 9-11 truth. Um, and the anthrax attacks, but also false flag analyses on JFK and MLK, uh, remembering per Pearl Harbor, um, the betrayal of India, a close look at the 2008 Mumbai terror attacks, and then 9-11 primary source evidence. Um, again, always going back to the sources and back to the evidence. So, uh, of course, people will hopefully know by this point that uh, Green McQueen did some of the pioneering work on the eyewitness testimony of the FDNY that he was talking about and alluding to in that GRTV report that we were watching. Well, here are the 118 witnesses, the firefighter's testimony to explosions in the Twin Towers, his compendium of that information and uh, eyewitness evidence of the explosions, uh, sonic booms in the collapse of the towers. There's appendices here. So this is, this is quite a collection of information um, over 
uh, 500 pages, um, actually, sorry, over 600 pages of information has been collected here, and it's completely freely available at Radical.org. I will, of course, put that link in the show notes so that you can go and start uh, perusing it for yourself. Um, but just to talk about this book, how it came together, which I think is an important part of this story, we're going to listen to another one of those testimonies that we opened today's episode with. And for those who are wondering, those testimonies were submitted as part of a project that Michael Welch of the Global Research News Hour, which I hope people are aware of and listening to, uh, put together as a tribute to Gray McQueen under the title A Guiding Light for 9-11 Truth. And that has been published up on, of course, the Global Research News Hour, um, and broadcast through those auspices, but also published on globalresearch.ca, and I will link to that so that you can go and watch Michael Welch's full report, which includes a lot of those testimony clips, but also includes at the bottom the embeds of the actual testimonies themselves from a number of people. And one of those was a statement by Dave Ratcliffe, the editor of Radical.org, who was instrumental in helping to put this compendium of Gray McQueen's works together, which, as I say, is available now for free, free perusing via HTML. It's available for free PDF download. And in the future, there is going to be an ebook version of this that is going to be for sale, the proceeds of which will be go- directed to um, uh, Gray McQueen's widow. So uh, I will let you know, I will endeavor to let you know when that is published so that people who are interested in purchasing that and helping to support his widow would be able to. Um, to purchase it. But right now, let's listen to Dave Ratcliffe talking about this uh, this book, how it came together, and his own personal relationship with Dr. McQueen. I have been many places in the 68-plus years I've been circling around the sun. I started the website Radical with a T on the September equinox 1995, because I understood that the internet, which now had a front-end interface with web browsers, was a very interesting development. And I have been initially working on focus of assassination of President Kennedy and the health effects of low-level ionizing radiation. That led me all over the place. I've met many people along the journey with whom I've been very grateful to know And initially, I learned about Graham from reading his go-to 2014 book, The 2001 Anthrax Deception, The Case for Domestic Conspiracy, an absolutely very, very detailed and not that long, I think it's a 160-page book that covers such a wide swath of something that happened more than two decades ago, that was certainly another one of the test runs for what humanity has been confronting for now just over the last three years with the false promise of biosecurity and the rise of the biosecurity state. In 2000, I've done a lot of stuff on Radical and I... uh, grabbed a couple of Graham's articles when they came out, when they were first published, the Pentagon's B movie and the, I have to remember the exact title. I can't keep things straight, but the one that he named beyond their wildest dreams, September 11, 2001 in the United States left. Uh, those were both in uh, 2017 and uh, being a 
just a an archivist of sorts, homemade archivist. I don't have any training, but I feel it's very important to catalog and archive and witness aspects of our life and times. These two articles were very significant for me, and I knew more from Graham reading them and linking them, uh, creating copies and, and extending hyperlinks for references he was making. I've known Edward Curtin since uh, meeting him at Jim Douglas's uh, workshop in Western Massachusetts in uh, December 2012 on JFK and the Unspeakable, looking ahead to 2013. And Ed is a very close friend. And last summer, he thought of having a Zoom birthday party for Graham. His birthday was in July. And uh, we tried to get Jim Douglas to join in. He didn't have the time, of course, working on his second incredible book. But Marty Schatz, myself, Ed, joined Graham for a wonderful Zoom birthday party and covered a beautiful wide swath of things. And it was very special. I knew from before then that Graham was dealing with uh, coming closer and closer to walking through the door into eternity. And so in October, after that, during that birthday party, Graham pointed out something about what he called, uh, if we in this social movement of 9-11 descent are not willing to tell our own stories, who will tell them? Uh, it was a very poignant moment because I think all four of us are very much devoted to creating records of our true living history that is ever more dismissed, omitted, distorted, and just covered up, censored by legacy corporate empire state media. And so I was, I really enjoyed that connection. And I followed up in early October with just writing Graham a personal letter, email, and he was very sweet in his response. It was just a general thing of wanting to share some ideas with him. And he wrote back saying he was wondering if he could ask a very mundane question, as he put it. He was he was looking forward to Ted Walter coming to his house to do filming for a documentary on him. And he realized he needed to go back and Re review the bulk of his writing so that he could be coherent in uh, being interviewed. So he asked if I might be able to help him assemble those things. And I said, yes, indeed, sign me up, be happy to help. So that turned into making this digital book, which began in earnest that month in October. I very clearly aware of the time constraint uh, another dear, dear friend of mine, John Judge. I met John in the 80s in California. And uh, there's no one, there was no one like John. There was no one like Graham. John, I kept thinking for years and years and years, I need to go see John again in Washington, D.C. But I didn't do it. And then he died of complications from a stroke 
in 2014 at the tender young age of 66. So it really helped to, to push me more to realize, do whatever you want to do now. Don't wait. And so when Graham brought this up in October, I thought, well, yes, absolutely. Let's go. So I pretty much dropped most everything else because I knew he might leave sooner than later. And I wanted to be able to, A, have something that he could see completed so that he could also get responses from people he knew and have that connection and that uh, visibility. And because if I wanted to ask him any questions, I needed to, excuse me, do this while I could still ask him questions. So the motivation about uh, telling our own stories was huge. And then uh, he, he let me write the postscript to this book. It's the last little chapter in it. And I, as I describe in the postscript at one point, I'm reading just from the text here. In a 2017 exchange with Marty Schatz, Vincent Salandria, Ed Curtin, William Whitney, Rodolfo Cardona, and me, Graham wrote about the process he explored in writing Beyond Their Wildest Dreams, September 11, 2001, in the United States left. His motivation was, quote, to understand how people come to know the world and how we can open up closed minds, unquote. He explained some of this as his, quote, imagination approach, unquote, in the following. This, this is all Graham's writing to this group of our correspondence email. I adopted the word, imagination, from German philosopher Gunther Anders, whose 1962 article, Thesis for the Atomic Age, had a big effect on me over the years as a peace and environmental activist. Anders said that in the nuclear age, we are doomed if we don't have imagination. He said, the basic dilemma of our age is that we are smaller than ourselves, incapable of mentally realizing the realities which we ourselves have produced. Therefore, we might call ourselves inverted utopians. While ordinary utopians are unable to actually produce what they are able to visualize, we are unable to visualize what we are actually producing. And that's the quote from Anders. And then Graham goes on. He also said that escapists of today do not hide in imagination. They hide in the ivory tower of perception because the senses are, quote, senselessly narrow, unquote. So, he was giving a power to this word, imagination, that we don't normally give it. Imagination is what we give ourselves to when we have the courage to face the world, to actually visualize what is going on. It is, he says, part of the courage to be afraid. Once again, that is Dave Ratcliffe of Radical.org, the publisher of the very newly released ebook PDF, um, a, the compendium of Dr. Gray McQueen's work on the Pentagon's B-movie, Looking Closely at the September 11th Attacks. Please go to corporatereport.com slash McQueen for the link to that interview, as well as 
to the book itself. And we could go on and on and on citing other testimony like that collected by Michael Welch for that edition of Global Research News Hour, and I suggest you do because I think some of it is powerful and attests to the person that Dr. McQueen was. Another reminiscence that I will point people to is that of Kevin Ryan, of course, the one of the premier uh, 9-11 researchers uh, who I've talked to many, many times over the years and cited his work, and he had uh, his own uh, remembrance of Gray McQueen posted up on digwithin.net, his website, which starts by noting, in the summer of 2006 at the newly formed Journal of 9-11 Studies, we received a submission from a Canadian professor named Gray McQueen. The paper was entitled, 118 Witnesses, the Firefighter's Testimony to Explosions in the Twin Towers. After peer review comments were addressed, it was published and it has become one of the most important articles in the 9-11 literature. For the next 17 years, Graham went on to lead the 9-11 Truth Movement through his outstanding scholarship, his thoughtful approach, and his ability to instill trust in colleagues. Along with his remarkable intelligence and wide-ranging analytical skills, McQueen's dedication to peace and justice made him a force to be reckoned with. Although he became the leading expert on testimonies related to 9-11, including those from firefighters, first responders, and media sources, he contributed much more to the cause, and his contributions will continue to light the way forward. And he goes on to talk about some of those ways that um, Dr. McQueen's other um, character qualities will continue to light the way forward. And specifically, he ends by saying, everyone who knew Graham will miss him dearly. I'll be forever grateful for his friendship and his leadership. So I will direct you there um, to digwithin.net for that full post. I think there's some valuable information and insights into Dr. McQueen there. And also, uh, when you do, uh, go check out the Global Research News Hour post and uh, Michael Welch's compilation. You'll note that I also put my own testimony reminiscence of Dr. McQueen in there, because as I did mention, as we saw earlier, I did meet him in person in Kuala Lumpur for the 9-11 Revisited Conference, so I certainly can't claim to be a close personal friend who knew Dr. McQueen deeply, but I did know him at a more personal level than I know almost all of the guests that I talked to electronically here on The Corporate Report. I did meet him in person. We did have uh, plenty of time to talk in those few days about various things, 9-11 and otherwise. So I have some sense of what others here are gesturing to and filling out um, in greater detail. But let me play my own remembrance, reminiscence that I submitted to Michael Welch as part of his compilation about remembering Crane McQueen. Thank you, Michael, for this opportunity to reflect on the life and work of Dr. Gray McQueen. And while I should state up front that I cannot claim a close personal friendship with Dr. McQueen, I, at the very least, did, unlike many of the people that I've had the chance to interview over the 16 years that I've been doing the Corbett Report, I did have the chance to meet Dr. Gray McQueen in person in Kuala Lumpur in 2012 at the 9-11 Revisited Conference. And in our conversations, both on and off camera, uh, we spent a lot of time in conversation over those few days. And I did get to at least sense who Dr. McQueen was and what he was motivated by. And although there is no doubt that he was a genuinely thoughtful, um, deep thinker and, and a scholar through and through, uh, that certainly was uh, a, an aspect of his character, I think I could also sense that underneath the very stoic exterior, there was a burning passion in Dr. McQueen for truth, for justice, 
and for peace. And that should be evident from his biography. Uh, co-founder of the Center for Peace Studies at McMaster University, someone who was an award-winning teacher teaching undergraduate uh, studies on uh, peace studies, uh, someone who wrote about the subject at length in various scholarly articles, who uh, was an editor on the board of uh, Peace Magazine, who had traveled to Afghanistan and other places to uh, discuss peace and to advocate for peace. An incredibly interesting man who had a very, very interesting career, but I think that career speaks to that passion that under underlay the work that he did, the incredibly important work that uh, I'm sure people in the alternative media space will know that he did on the subjects of 9-11 Truth and the anthrax attacks of 2001. And of course, I had the chance to interview Dr. McQueen on those subjects specifically several times over the years. But I wanted to share a personal remembrance from my final interview with Dr. McQueen, which took place in 2019. And at that time, I was working on the 9-11 Whistleblowers series, where I was examining various first-hand accounts of people who had direct experience or knowledge of uh, the events surrounding 9-11, who uh, were pointing out the anomalies. And I was working on the piece on William Rodriguez, who was one of the janitors in the Twin Towers, who reported about the explosions that took place before the planes actually hit. And uh, in that regard, I contacted Dr. McQueen because I know he, I knew he had written one of the premier scholarly articles on the subject of first responder eyewitness testimony. In fact, he poured through the hundreds of hours of transcripts of various interviews that were done with firefighters and first responders in the immediate wake of 9-11 and wrote a very important uh, scholarly article on the subject and what we could learn about the eyewitness accounts of explosions in the buildings from that testimony. So I contacted Dr. McQueen. What I did not know at that time was that he was suffering. He was already in his struggle against cancer, and uh, he was uh, going through a great degree of medical uh, discomfort at the time. But he still agreed to do the interview because he recognized the importance of that information and was truly passionate about getting that information out to others. And I think it is audibly and visibly um, so that uh, in that interview, you can tell that he was certainly not 100% in terms of his physical condition, but he was still very much uh, motivated by a, a passion for getting that information out to others. And I think, although obviously the loss of a scholar of uh, the abilities, the talents and abilities and communicative ability of someone like Dr. McQueen is a huge loss for 9-11 Truth and for peace and justice generally, I think we should still take away the inspiring message of Dr. McQueen and the work that he provided under sometimes uh, adverse events and adverse circumstances, he's, his struggle to continue to press on the, uh, the, the nerves of, of power to try to uh, achieve justice and peace is, is truly an inspiring message and one that we can all take to heart as we continue to pass that information forward. And I have no doubt that as long as people are still interested in these subjects and are still trying to pass on this information about truth, about justice, about peace, I have no doubt that Dr. McQueen's life, work, and inspiration will be a part of that, informing it. Now, obviously, I 
truly and profoundly and really from the bottom of my heart, I hope that this episode will direct more people back to Gray McQueen's foundational and incredibly important work. Uh, because there is a lot of information in there that still, even many people in the 9-11 Truth Movement have not read or considered uh, or taken on board, and that deserves to be. But even beyond that, I think the core message that I hope that people will understand from today's episode is what I mentioned there at the end of that testimony, that ultimately, yes, the work, the information that Dr. McQueen helped to convey in such a wonderfully thoughtful and stoic manner uh, is absolutely important. But perhaps even more important than that is the example that he set and the inspiration that he gives us to follow in those very large footsteps. We learn from Dr. McQueen how to be dispassionate about topics that we are very passionate about, how to use the light of logic and reason and evidence to guide us and to present to others, and how to courageously follow that information wherever it leads and whatever ramifications that may have for us. Uh, he provides the example of how to, how to have a resounding influence, not by acting the fool or by screaming the loudest, but by being modest, by being humble, by being a soft speaker guided by and galvanized by the conviction of the truth. Not bombastics and theatrics, but the unassailable nature of the truth, presented humbly, but with power. So, I am sure I do not speak only for myself. I speak on the behalf of many people when I give my thanks. Thank you, Doc, Dr. McQueen. Not just for the work that you've done, but for the inspiration that you have given us. Rest in peace. You will be missed. That's going to do it for this edition of the Corbett Report, but I think, appropriately enough for today, we'll leave the final words to Dr. Gray McQueen. Once again, please see the show notes at corbettreport.com slash McQueen for links back to all of the information cited in today's episode. I am James Corbett of the Corbett Report, looking forward to talking to you again in the near future. Friends, and here I mean not just the peace movement, but everybody, this is the worst possible time in history to inflame societies with the spirit of war. This is the worst time to be taken in by fraudulent trigger incidents. It's the most important time to reject the war system, cooperate with the rest of humanity to solve the grave ecological problems we face, which collectively threaten our civilization. As I draw this talk to a conclusion, I want to, I want to quote one of the members of the New York Fire Department, Kenneth Rogers, who was a witness on 9-11. We were standing there with about five companies, and we were just waiting for our assignment. And then there was an explosion in the South Tower. A lot of guys left at that point. I kept watching. Floor after floor after floor. One floor under another after another. And when it hit about the fifth floor, I figured it was a bomb because it looked like a synchronized, deliberate kind of thing. And I want to use his testimony as a kind of metaphor here. I want to say to the peace movement, the reason he saw things that others didn't is because he didn't leave the scene and he didn't, didn't, didn't turn his head away. He stood there and he looked at it. And that's all I'm asking the peace movement to do. Stop turning your head away. Don't flee the scene. Look at it, please.